There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Welcome to Keep It, a new podcast from Crooked Media. I'm your host, Ira Madison III. Each week, I'll be joined by friends of mine, writers, comedians, journalists, activists, you name it, to discuss the intersection of pop culture and politics at a time when we're all obsessing over both. Because sometimes you just need to say, no thanks, keep it. Once again, I am joined by Louis Vertel, comedian and writer for Billy on the Street and Hit Fix and Billboard. And this week, he is going to name all of Rita Ora's Oscar nominations. Oh my gosh. Well, it begins with cinematography, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so psyched to be back. I, I haven't gotten to say what I believe will be my new catchphrase, which is it's already been kept, but coming soon. We'll see. Okay. Um, <laughs> also here again is Kara Brown, former senior writer for Jezebel and current staff writer for Freeform's Gronish. No Prosecco this week? Um, I was running late. Oh, I was you fully. Were. I was fully... <laughs> intent on buying Prosecco this morning <laughs> and we were going to drink it. But I'm sure there's still some in me from last night. There we go. Yeah. Glad you two are back. Happy um, to be back. Everyone, Thrilled to be back. The internet wanted you back. I they guess. wanted Lewis back to do his, his <laughs> so party like, he, trick. So yeah, can Lewis do more gay circus things? <laughs> <laughs> um, later, I will be joined by Rostam, singer and songwriter and former member of the indie pop band Vampire Weekend, where we'll talk about being a first-generation Iranian-American and how film critiques during awards season lose all nuance when you talk about them on social media. But before that, we're going to get into the news. So, Donald Trump. Ooh. I don't plan no, no. on talking about him that much on this show. Thank God. But last week, you know, he had comments criticizing immigrants coming to the U.S. from what he considers shithole countries. I'm already tired of the word shithole <laughs> and people trying to appropriate it in the way that they appropriate it. Nasty woman or Kofi for every other phrase of his. But it did lead to a spectacular moment where Don Lemon opened his Thursday CNN show by getting a little lit. CNN Tonight, I'm Don Lemon. The president of the United States is racist. Kara. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's here. Here's what I wonder if people remember. Don Lemon used to be like Tom Dubois from the Boondocks, like Times Five. <laughs> he was out here saying the wildest bullshit. For years, there was the time he got up on CNN and held up a giant sign that said the N-word, and he was like, does this offend you? He like, was when they were deciding if the N-word was worse than the word cracker. Yes. That, that was, was the discussion. CNN that segment. important nuanced discussion. He was riding around in that, like, blizzard mobile. He told, um, he asked a rape victim on air if maybe she had thought of fighting back. When there was that girl in South Carolina who was slammed to the ground on camera by a police officer, he was 
was like, I mean, I don't know. We know we don't we don't know what she did to deserve that. He was on one. And one now of the worst moments was do you remember when he went on air, live on air, and said that Bill O'Reilly's criticism of the black community didn't go far enough and he followed <laughs> it up with five things black people could do, like pulling up their pants and I don't know. Stop sharing your HBO Go passwords with your cousins. <laughs> what a um, fine Ranker.com article that would be. A, there was a viral clip where a woman interrupted a newscast and called him an Uncle Tom <laughs> on air. So this oh. is the last person I ever expected right? Don Lemon to be. Guys, if you want like a good like history of mediocrity, please search Kara Brown's <laughs> history of writing about Don Lemon on Jezebel. <laughs> All of his greatest hits line right up. I mean, the man compared himself. He said, if I would have been a writer... I would have been like James Baldwin. He was out of his black ass mind for so <laughs> long. And he now is like all of the sense has flowed back into his body just in time. It's like he had one semester at an HBCU <laughs> and is he has an afro now. Right. Um, he saw Get Out and, and it just. Right. Aside from this, like during Charlottesville, like he actually had intelligent shit to say. Right. Um, and I was very shocked. I was at a party for the Out 100 where he was honored, and um, he came up to give a speech, and I was sort of like, I don't want to hear him talk. <laughs> but he gave a speech, and I was sort of like, you sound like a person I could have a conversation with, right. which is completely unlike Don Lemon's been it's, for the past few years. It makes me realize, too, and I, I think this also about Megyn Kelly, where sometimes you're like, are these people just off of it like are they crazy or are they just really like that ignorant and you're like no they know better and they also know how to get ratings and I would argue that that's much worse than just being ignorant like saying horrible things just to get attention is much worse but I'm like oh Don all of these years you knew better like because for a while I think we were just like this dude like he's lost but now it's like I think he knew all of those years and he's like oh that's no longer gonna work if you know like they already have Fox News like they don't they don't need me. And so now he's like actually being a smart person. I think additionally also whenever I think of him and at least in those days from like years past, he always struck me as someone who was like struggling to assert himself, like almost feeling awkward being like editorial, unlike, say, a like Joy Reid, who's like, here's the correct answer in the right order and we're moving on. <laughs> I always felt like I was watching someone who's like the intern trying to step into an employee role. <laughs> Well, part of his struggle, too, and he talked about this during his Out 100 speech, is he's always had this sort of push and pull with being gay and also being black. Um, Which is impossible, as you know. You know what? Um, some days I'm gay. Some right. days I'm black. Today I'm days... just a woman. Yeah. But he talks about trying to interact, you know, with white gay people like Lewis. Um, <laughs> and uh, just how hard it was. And I feel like he's always sort of had these internal struggles that got the better of him. And now that Donald Trump is wiling out on a daily basis, right. he just decided, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to be black as hell right now. Thank God. <laughs> um, also, by the way, do not forget, there was some New Year's, because he still hosts that, uh, right? the New Year's right. thing, where he got drunk on air and he started kind of, I'll say, ranting. And he was like, <laughs> I think this is the year I'm 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 ready to take on a relationship. I was like, holy shit, we all are basic at heart. <laughs> With that ear piercing? Yeah, yes. right. He he wanted a tattoo, or he wanted his nipple pierced. Um, oh, but God. wasn't it like Anderson Cooper convinced him to just like get his um, ear pierced? 
What does it mean, Kara, when black news reporters like Don Lemon do connect with their audience? Because we've always had, you know, like Tamron Hall and yeah. like a Joy Ann Reed, and Don Lemon has just sort of not been one of those people. Yeah. He's sort of just been like, you might as well have been one of those people stumping for the GOP on Fox News right. as opposed to being on CNN. Do we want our black reporters to always be down? I mean, they don't have to be down, but they don't need to be saying nonsense. And that's the thing. We're Don Lemon. It wasn't like, here's this black reporter on CNN and we're expecting him to speak just to black people and only about black issues. But he, when he spoke about black issues, he did so, so poorly. And it was almost like, I wish he just wouldn't talk about those things if you're not going to approach them with any sense or nuance or have people around you to help you approach those issues appropriately. So you don't have to be down, but you can't be crazy Mm -hmm. so the fact that like if he had just sort of come back and been like I'm not going to touch those issues anymore I'm going to leave that to the people qualified here to do that I think that would have been fine but I'm happy that he has come around and you know is being a helpful voice for the very first time well you know it's great that he's in a way sort of asserting his privilege to do so Mm -hmm. because he's still a man and he lit into Donald Trump and Trump didn't tweet about him, right. you know, as opposed to women like Jamel Hill who slipped out of their like normal everyday ESPN moment to be like calling out the NFL mm-hmm. um, and calling out Donald Trump and white supremacy. And he got fired up right. on Twitter. Don Lemon really is probably never going to be attacked like that. Part of it, too, is because he's an anchor on CNN. And so, like, Fox News isn't going to cover what he's saying about the president as opposed to covering what, like, a sports anchor might say. Exactly, yeah. But I do see that it's sort of safe for Don Lemon to be blacker now. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's not just that he's covering issues black issues in a smart way now but i think he's also allowing room for other smart voices to come in on his show which i don't really remember him doing so i don't want to give him too much credit for right. just being competent now he to keep it for a very, for long, a very time. long time he's basically but... now he's doing his job well yeah. and so you don't get a ton of props for that but just please god thanks don't the, stop th- doing th- it thanks for the adequacy yes um you you are a gap employee who is folding the sweaters <laughs> and ringing customers up like you should be instead of texting in the back right <laughs> Jumping back into a topic from last week, Kara, oh, um, you went on <laughs> about Greta Gerwig oh, and how good. she was waffling about yes. her support for Woody Allen. And then literally around the same time, an interview came out with the New York Times where she finally said, if I had known then what I know now, I would not have acted in the film. I would not have worked for him again, and I will not work for him again. Dylan Farrow's two different pieces made me realize that I increased another woman's pain. I was heartbroken by that realization. I grew up on his movies, and they've informed me as an artist, and I can't change that now, but I can make different decisions going forward. Keep it already changing the world. <laughs> I like this. Yes. You know, it was exactly what I wanted her to say. It was a thoughtful response, which the is Globes. the exact opposite of what she had at the Golden Globes. Right, and it makes me wonder, like, 
obviously she sat down with her team or maybe she just thought she is a writer. Um, She she asked herself what the right answer would be. Uh, But, you know, it was just weird that like nobody seemed prepared for it at the Globes. Like right. they were thinking, no one's going to ask me this. When the whole theme of the Globes was time's up and you think no one's going to ask you mm-hmm. about working with this man, which was a wild assumption if that is what they were assuming. But I'm very happy that she said something coherent, said something smart, and won't do it again. Well, the thing is, people really only sort of asked her just because she was in that spotlight. And the spotlight came back because Dylan Farrow was tweeting about it and hashtagging Time's Up during the Globes. Um, Oprah actually had a segment for her CBS Sunday morning thing because all of a sudden she's a news anchor again now. Uh, we wanted her back on TV. We wanted and her there back. she is. Uh, Keep it again Jesus. changing the world. <laughs> what genius what else is in do this you guys studio? Want? What else do you guys want so we can make it happen here at Keep It? To be fair, I think she's been on for like a few weeks interviewing Ugh, Trump whatever. supporters. You know what? Don't whatever. ruin this Come for me. Come on. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> but Oprah asked some women involved in the Time's Up movement and got responses from Shonda Rhimes, Kathleen Kennedy, Natalie Portman, and also Reese Witherspoon. Uh, Dylan Farrow tweeted about Time's Up saying that when she came forward about her alleged abuser, uh, Woody Allen, four years ago, that she thought his time was up. I think he was getting the same award that I received. And she says she thought his time was up, but it wasn't. And she asked, is time really up now? What would you want to say to her? Mm. I hope so. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't know about anybody else, but I hope so. Mm. I'd like to believe the time's up for silence. Yeah. We can start there. I believe Dylan. Yeah. I would want to say that. Yeah. I believe you, Dylan. That's awesome. Additionally, too, just thinking about Woody Allen, I I will say it does feel disproportionately like the women in his movies are being held responsible for their part in it. Like it doesn't seem like people are asking Alec Baldwin what the deal is, et cetera. And it's one of those things where it's like, why do we expect women to feel more guilt than the rest of us? Feels a little sexist just in general. That said, it's like this is I don't want to say exciting, but it's just my God, common sense the information we have about Woody Allen, I think we've been in denial about how much we had, which is all of this damning stuff, all of the stuff we know about the kind of treatment he sought for very specific issues relating to, like, I think at least teenage girls. So for people to finally be like... there's always teenage women in his movies. There's always a teen adult romance. And there was this trove of uh, stuff that was just unearthed about him where, like, all these scripts that didn't get made where it's about some older guy and some older woman. And then there's the fact that when Mia Farrow discovered his relationship with Soon Yi... She also found photographs of her, you know, like sexy ones of her at 17, 18 or whatever. And they were in Woody's apartment. There's always been this stuff out there. And it's weird that we're not asking the men. We have Rebecca Hall, who was in Vicky Cristina Barcelona a few years ago. She is in his latest soon to be released feature, A Rainy Day in New York. And she gave the statement some seven months ago. I quickly said yes. He gave me one of my first significant roles in film, and I've always been grateful. And it was one day shooting in my hometown. It was easy to do so. But she's donating her salary. Mira Savino has come out and said that she's sorry for working with Woody Allen. And Mira's sort of the last person who really needed to do that because she was one of Weinstein's victims. And Weinstein completely obliterated her career. And here she is still being like, I'm sorry 
for working with Woody Allen. Ellen Page has done it. The only men who've done it so far are actor Griffin Newman, who's an actor on The Tick. He had a small role in Wonder Wheel, and he donated his money to Rain, a group that works with sexual assault and violence. And recently, Timothy Chalamet said that he was sorry for working with Woody Allen, and he was also going to donate his money to Rain, making him sort of the first major star who's a male, right. to say something about it? Well, you know, I'm wondering, we might have to teach men to apologize first before they understand the idea that they should be apologizing for working with Woody Allen. Right, because his apology... Because <laughs> I, like, I feel like they've never had to do... They're like male actors, male white actors, because you know he hasn't put anyone else in his movies. It's like they've never had to apologize for anything. They're unfamiliar with the concept. Ellen Page was one of the first people to really kick this off. And this is like the second time there's been no going back after Ellen Page when she came out a couple of years ago and said she was tired of lying by omission. I mean, it's just we cannot give her enough credit for being one right and two really empowering other people to speak out against, you know, really kind of blatantly horrible things. So that's very exciting. Otherwise, I'm super happy Timothée Chalamet said that because he does seem to be the world's fair-skinned boyfriend right now. Isn't Timothée... <laughs> Is it Timothy? I think it's Timothee Chalamet. Because everyone calls Ooh. him Timmy, you know, like a nickname. Right. Um, no, if but, I were to em- embroider a pillow for him, it would say Timmy on yes, it. Yes, but his first name is spelled T-I-M-O-T-H-E. Exante like, you know, Tim- Beyonce. I mean, I don't and then know. E, so it should be <laughs> Timothee. Don't look yeah. at me. Timothee Hive. Is there a Timothee Hive? Ooh, Timothee Hive. He's like the young I mean, white I, un- I, I understand to these teens, Kara. They love him. Do they? They love him? They the saw teens. Call Me By Your Name, and they all went out and bought peaches and came in them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to close this out, honestly, by naming the men who have worked with Woody Allen for the past 10 years, and we have not been asking them any questions. And if Timothy... Chalamet is going to be <laughs> donating his money and speaking up about it, then everybody else should be too. So past 10 years, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, Javier Bardem, and Kevin Dunn. Whatever works, Ed Begley Jr., Larry David, Conleth Heal, Michael McKean. You will meet a tall, dark stranger. <laughs> These classics. <laughs> Antonio Banderas, Josh Brolin, Anthony Hopkins, Roger Ashton Griffiths. Midnight in Paris, Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody, and I still have questions about him kissing Halle Berry without her consent at the mm. Oscars. That is one of the we grossest moments in the history of the ceremony. And it plays every time you see him win his Oscar, a clip of him. With that giant um, nose. You could, win, you, could reach <laughs> up that, you could reach up that nose, pull out a flag, and win double there. <laughs> I hate you so much. Uh, Michael Sheen was also in that movie. Then there's To Roam With Love. Alec Baldwin, Roberto Benigni, Jesse Eisenberg, Blue Jasmine, Alec Baldwin again, Peter Sarsgaard, Louis C.K., and I'm sure we know how he feels. Like, he was probably thinking about Woody Allen while he was jizzing in uh, succulents. Andrew Dice Clay, LOL. (laughs) Bobby Cannavale, nobody asks him about Woody Allen ever. Nope. Mostly because he's so hot and I, it would probably be hard for me to ask I him guess. anything. And you root for him in Rose Byrne. Don't slander this is a him. List, these are, this is just a list of people 
I've forgotten we're alive and do not care about. <laughs> Michael Stolberg was in that movie. Like, who was that? Michael Stolberg. He, but he's uh, Timothée's father in Call Me By Your Name. Name. I wonder if oh, they had a heart God. to heart about this. <laughs> and Magic in the Moonlight, Colin Firth, Hamish Linklater, Simon McBurney, what? Rational Man, You're Jamie Blackley, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, at my gym, I saw Jamie Blackley one time. He was very nice. Was he? We we did an interview once, and he recognized me. I didn't recognize him. Did you How about ask, that, Jamie? Did you ask him about Woody Allen in that interview? I didn't. Shocking. <laughs> no. You're part of it the was problem. Be, it was before that movie, honey. You are part of the problem. <laughs> You're always mocking my craft. <laughs> Moving on to other problematic actors. <sighs> it's every week. <laughs> Every Every, is this what this show is now? Honestly, Pod Save America has to deal with Trump every week. And I feel like we have to deal with Hollywood actors being trash every week. Yes. This week, it's a twofer. You have Aziz Ansari and James Franco both had pieces come out about their sexual misconduct. Last week, Babe.net published an anonymous account of a woman named Grace They gave her that name, obviously, to protect her identity, who had a sexual encounter with Aziz that, you know, many discussed as assault, part of rape culture and coercion. He continued to pressure her to have sex, even though she didn't want to. And she ultimately did have sex with him just so she could leave. The account left many divided over whether or not his behavior actually constituted assault or rape, however, and it prompted a flurry of mm. response pieces that were really Wh- trash. Wild. The Atlantic, yes. the New York Times, every piece I've read about it, except for maybe one on my way here, was trash. Then there was the LA Times, which published a piece on James Franco's alleged creepy behavior with his former acting students. My problem with both of these things were the fact that I completely believe the account in Babe.net. But the person who wrote it seemed more concerned with writing it in like a novelistic, memoirish approach. And so it read horrible. I would say it it, was, to me, it was styled like the Weinstein piece. They they wanted to feel like that, you know, the anecdotal evidence lining up, et cetera. Yeah, Yeah. but it didn't make any sense. It came across sloppy and unedited, as did the LA Times piece, which I felt, frankly, was rushed. And if you're doing a piece where you're talking about someone's sexual assault history. I don't need people giving anecdotes about him falling asleep in class. I think we're getting to a point where a lot of nuance is needed to have the discussions we need to be having. I think neither of those pieces handled that well. I don't think the Babe.net piece was a great example of really rigorous journalism. And more than anything, the only good thing I saw written about it was by Jamila Jamil, who is an actress on The Good Place. And she had a really interesting take, which was the idea that she sort of removed disease from the conversation. And she was saying that consent should be the baseline, because if you don't have consent, it's criminal. So let's just assume you have consent. After that, it's the idea that men are not trained to recognize a situation where a woman is enthusiastic about the encounter that they're having. So just because you're not getting a no is not enough. You should be looking for someone who is engaged, who is excited, who is interested, who wants to be doing whatever you're doing. And I, you know, I'm not going to make a judgment on whether 
the encounter that they had is sexual assault or not. But at the very least, this was clearly a woman who didn't seem particularly into it. And you would hope that a man or anyone in any scenario like that would recognize that their partner is not excited and be sensitive and be aware of that. And she was talking about that as the larger issue here. And that talking about that also requires sensitivity. It requires nuance. It requires not jumping to conclusions and and a lot of things that people were doing on Twitter. And we've not been good at that, as we've seen throughout all of this. It would be great if the piece had been written in that direction. But I feel like we've reached a point now where sites want these sexual assault story clicks. These pieces felt like they were rushed. They wanted to get them out immediately after the Globes while people were still talking about Mm -hmm. Aziz and Franco's wins. And the LA Times thing, I know multiple people who've been working on trying to get a James Franco story out. I feel like all of us do in Hollywood. People have always sort of whispered, being like, is James Franco a creep or not? We've all known about him Instagram DMing like that Mm 17-year-old girl years ago. I heard about that when he was back at NYU and I was too. And it was in Gawker. Mm -hmm. But now you have people who are just like, let's get these pieces out as soon as possible. There's a lack of reporting. There's a lack of sources. And I feel like the general public is sort of eating it up because obviously the Babe.net story is harrowing when it's not using similes and analogies where it compares him picking red wine as opposed to white wine as, you know, like a metaphor. A telling for, detail. A telling detail yeah. that she was about to be assaulted and using that, like, as a metaphor for consent. But there's just a, not a lot of real attention going into these stories. People forget that that Weinstein story, that both of them came out, Ronan's story and then the New York Times' story, there was months Right. And Months by of the, working by on the, these stories. I just want to say that also something that's annoying to me is how this conversation is being framed as like this is uh, like uh, hindering the Me Too movement. It's like nothing about these stories makes me reconsider what happened to Simone Biles, which we learned about this week being molested by that team doctor. This doesn't make me reconsider what happened to Eliza Dushku where that stunt, stunt coordinator yeah. molested her. It's like I'm sick of people framing the Me Too conversation like it's literally a Hollywood it girl we're going to get sick of soon. <laughs> like she's getting all these bad roles with this Aziz Ansari thing. You know what I mean? It's like, no, this is already legitimate based on what has been in- uncovered. Right. So trying to frame it as if we're about to lose Lose it because we don't quite agree with you know how the Aziz story was written is like disgusting and it's people who are looking to frame it that way are just looking for a way to discredit the movement yeah because the only the only way you'd have the reaction to the story is like see me too is flawed or see like maybe we need to like look back at these other encounters and see if this is true or whatever is if you are looking to poke holes in this or you're a complete idiot right no but it, again it gives you the feeling that like People are looking to disbelieve this whole thing, and there's one false move, and we'll lose it all. It's like, are you stupid? Have you not right. been paying attention? There's, we have volumes of you know information that's been confirmed and confirmed again. Just that we know, and think of the many, many volumes of things we don't know. Yes, I just wanted to point out quickly since I brought a Ronan's story. Also mentioned those women, Megan Tui, Jody Cantor, and Rachel Abrams, who were the Times reporters who really did a lot of vigorous working and digging through sources and just giving you actual reporting on this. And I think what's happened, too, is the fact that when that story came out, 
every site sort of jumped into we need to do responses to this. So there became a lot of op-eds. There became a lot of takes. I wrote a few of them for the <laughs> Daily Beast. But that turned into now people sort of thinking that an op-ed can double as an investigative report. Yeah. And it's not. What I write is not investigative journalism. Mm -hmm. It's cultural criticism. And people need to get you know the difference but yeah. by the way they're both pulitzer categories so there is hope for you ira oh i know <laughs> <laughs> don't you worry honey vote for me pulitzer <laughs> am i allowed to say that yeah, that's how it works i right? don't th i don't think it'll have an impact <laughs> okay the pulitzer board isn't listening to this are they i don't know that this is the criteria it's how many asks for us to vote for them okay well if, if someone with like a basket of prosecco um i would love <laughs> A Pulitzer Prize for cultural criticism. I'm sure you would. <laughs> <laughs> Champagne does it by itself. After these ads, Keep It will be right back. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no uh if you want to bring coziness into your life you turn to barefoot dreams especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary with those 30 years of coziness barefoot dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket and while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets robes and more barefoot dreams fabrication and quality cannot be replicated so don't believe the dupes girl this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. <laughs> Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. 
Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the Black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Kara. Yes. We're back. Ah, uh, yes. You know what time it is. I do know. It's Keep It. Yes. MLK Day was this week. Woo! And yes. MLK. I'm sure there's some white people you're mad at. Well, you know, I can't even get mad anymore because I don't have the energy. But mostly my Keep It is aimed at all of the GOP politicians who tweeted their ridiculous quotes and like just cherry picking their Martin Luther King Jr. ideas and quotes and whatever on MLK Day and saying, you know, he had a dream or whatever the hell. And honestly, fuck all of you. You're terrible people. You do not follow anything that he ever preached ever. You don't care about the people that he cared about. It's honestly an embarrassment that you're even allowed to say his name. And I'm really looking at you, Paul Ryan. Oh, but he's so winsome, Kara. Oh, my God. Give and him staring, a break. At that, staring at that statue. I wanted that statue to just like come to life and be like, get away from me, Paul Ryan. <laughs> Back up. Lewis. My keep it is less significant than that. It is um, to the duet version of Perfect by Ed Sheeran and Beyonce. Let me explain. Among Ed Sheeran songs, it's fine. I mean, it's totally the wedding song for like a wedding that is just chock full of mason jars. So, I mean, somebody's got to <laughs> have this song there. Mind you, the version with Beyonce. It gives Ed Sheeran the opportunity to be like, you look perfect tonight, as if Beyonce, you know, doesn't really have it going on most nights, and but tonight she does. It's like, Ed Sheeran, Beyonce is like if Tina Turner were an X-Men, so she does have more <laughs> powers than you. So you don't really need to be in the position of telling her she looks perfect tonight. That's great. Thanks. I think my keep it this week is Catherine Deneuve issued an apology <laughs> for a letter that she and a bunch of French women wrote about... <laughs> the Me Too movement, and said that in their initial letter, she was like, you know, the men, you know, they they touch you, they they touch your leg, they kiss the breast, you know, it's it's foreplay. I don't I don't know what accent that was. Famous cartoon skunk, (laughs) but she uh, issued an apology this week after people uh, rightly attacked her and these women. Catherine Deneuve and the French Women. I can't wait to see that movie uh, win the Oscar (laughs) next year. Frances McDormand will play Catherine Deneuve. (laughs) But she said that she's sorry for anyone who's actually been assaulted, but she still believes that (laughs) we need to know that flirting is different from assault and i think we all knew thanks, that thanks bitch we knew that like <laughs> we okay oh is she a scientist <laughs> right i don't think it's sexy when a man slaps me in the face with his baguette like <laughs> all right <laughs> karen lewis thank you for joining me again i will see you next week oh my god we get to come back what <laughs> we must be so nice uh, when we're back i have an interview with rostam <laughs> 
Since we're in the middle of awards season, I wanted to reflect on one of last year's biggest moments, the entire La La Land versus Moonlight debacle. Film critics were divided, friends were divided, the North and South was divided, all because of Ryan Gosling. So to discuss, I brought on singer and songwriter Rostam, who you may know from his work with the band Vampire Weekend. He and I first started interacting on Twitter because we shared the same views on La La Land, so I wanted to check back in and see how we're feeling about it a year later. We'll also talk about his debut solo album, Half Light, and his upcoming North American tour, which launches on January 29th in Atlanta, Georgia. So let's dive into this conversation with Rasta. I first started following you on Twitter. We first started following each other okay. after last year, the yes. um, La La Land debacle yes. of the Oscars. La La Land gate. Yes. Do you still feel the same way about La La Land? La La Land's a musical, for those of you who don't know, starring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, and it was directed by Damien Chazelle. It almost won the Oscar in a error at the Oscars, but um, Moonlight ended up winning. So after all of that, with La La Land losing to Moonlight, how do you feel about the movie now? I think... You know, when you're a kid, musicals very much function as uh, safe spaces for those of us who don't identify as straight. And furthermore, if you look at, like, the director of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which Damien Chazelle cited as a huge influence on La La Land. It's my favorite French film. It was directed by a gay man who, he was married, but he was still gay. And his movies had an inherent homosocial and oftentimes homosexual undertone. And I guess what I was reacting to, and I've never actually really fully gotten to speak on this, but I guess I was reacting to the fact that here you have two things which are gay things to me, Mm -hmm. specifically musicals and Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And here's a movie musical about Los Angeles which erases Mm -hmm. gay people. Yeah. And... I'm not telling Damien Chazelle what to do or mm. saying that he's a bad filmmaker. I'm not. I'm just sharing my feelings and uh, that upset people. But it also resonated with people. It did. You know, I actually did not hate the movie. I actually no. found it beautiful. And then when I critiqued, you know, the racial politics of the film, yeah, the backlash was sort of similar. It was like... yeah. Ira hates this movie, and every piece that wrote about people who didn't like La La Land mentioned, and Ira Madison III from MTV News loves La La Land, and I was quoted in like every piece as yeah. like, I hate this movie, but I'm like, if you read the piece that I wrote about it, I said that I actually enjoyed the movie, I enjoy musicals, I love Emma Stone, I love Ryan Gosling, I thought it was a fun movie, I just found that the use of Ryan Gosling as sort of this white savior Mm -hmm. of jazz music was off-putting. And I get what you mean, too. You know, the sort of history of musicals, we sort of grew up on musicals that give you, like, you know, like, Anything Goes and Guys and Dolls, and they're, like, traditional, like, love stories between, like, a white guy and, like, a white woman. But those musicals have usually, throughout history, been created by gay people. And they have gay actors in them. And it's just weird to be in a position now where we're making films that pay homage to that. Mm -hmm. um, But they don't acknowledge the roots 
of the musicals that they're referencing. Well, yeah, another criticism that I got was, you say there's no gay people in La La Land. Well, how do you know? And I think that was one of the most infuriating <laughs> things that's, that multiple people said. Mm-hmm. And the answer is something called visibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's weird to have to explain what visibility is to like fairly educated people. Well, I wouldn't call anyone on Twitter fairly educated. Well, I'll tell you, there was this guy who was in a band that never did anything. They were called Chester French. Mm-hmm. And I remember the whole thing was that they went to Harvard. I never really knew those guys. But one of the guys from that band tried to come for me. And that was what he said. He said, how do you know there aren't gay people in the movie? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I might be misremembering, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I thought about responding. There were so many people tried to come for me. I thought about responding to them. And then I was like, no, you're, you're bigger than this. You've said what you wanted to say. It got turned into a news story. I did not expect for Pitchfork.com to take my tweets and assemble them into a paragraph and post it as a news story. Mm-hmm. But, well, that's the media these days. But actually, I'm okay with it because I believe in what I said. Mm-hmm. I will say this. There is a Vampire Weekend fan Tumblr that <laughs> compiled everything that I said about La La Land. And when that happened, when that uh, Moonlight eventually won the Oscar, but initially was misawarded. Yeah, when um, when La La Land was, was when Faye Dunway um, accidentally <laughs> said that La La Land won Best Picture. Exactly. When she had the wrong envelope. Exactly. So, one thing I noticed the day after that happened is that the New York Times chose as their photograph to encapsulate the entire event of the Oscars. They chose a photograph where the cast members of Moonlight were looking away from the camera and the only faces that you could see were white faces. Mm -hmm. And my response to that was like, okay, here's an Oscars where people of color, although I didn't watch the Oscars, I'll be honest with you. I I told the Oscars they could keep it. I I was like, here's an Oscars that feels really important for people of color. You know, finally, they're not ignoring us in the ways that they have so often. And yet this New York Times photograph that is encapsulating the event, it's still a white-centric that was, photo. That was and, a lot of my problem with the aftermath of the Oscars. You know, it was such an important event for Moonlight, but, you know, there was the cover of Variety where Damien and Barry shared the cover. And, you know, Barry already explained right after that when I tweeted about it that usually the person who wins Best Director gets that cover. However, Inaritu won that twice in a row, and this one of the times they didn't give him the cover because he'd already had one. Mm. And I just felt like with the historic sort of moment there, you know, a gesture could have gone to give the cover to Moonlight or do something for mm-hmm. Moonlight. It felt that everything centered around Emma Stone's reaction or mm. Ryan Gosling's reaction or like the audience's reaction and not here are the people who won. I I felt weird about that whole La La Land situation because I was like, I don't want to be known for for being negative. I don't like that, you know? I don't want that to be something I'm known for because I'm a very positive guy. That's something like very important to me is like positivity, optimism. We can you talk and I about, don't have that in common. Well, yeah, we can talk <laughs> about that. You know, those are things that I wanted to say with my album, like try to find some hope in the world. No, I get it, that. And getting to... It, Talking about positivity then and your album, I responded to it um, 
very well. I love the album. <laughs> uh, no, I uh, I think it's very beautiful. Thank um, you. And I, you know, I was joking about being negative. I love positivity, <laughs> and I love um, talking specifically about you know visibility and representation. I love how it's a queer album, but it feels like it doesn't feel you know like you are listening to a RuPaul album. Not to knock a RuPaul album, I love a RuPaul album, but you get what I'm trying to say. It sort of encompasses all your identities as an Iranian American mm-hmm. as well. It feels very New York. Yeah, I guess I wanted to make a record where I felt like a frat dude could like turn it on and be like, I fuck with Ross, damn, that shit is the bomb. <laughs> Let's go to the lacrosse game and, and fucking chug some beers. I love Ross, damn. and then you know, comes home from the lacrosse game and his buddy's like, yo, Rostam, that's some fucking faggot shit. And he's like, I don't give a fuck. I love Rostam. <laughs> I wanted to make that album that like, you know, I wanted to bring the frat boys in. I don't want to tell them that they can't listen to my music. I want them to fuck with my music. I'll have, I have plenty of time in my career to make shit that they can't fuck with. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said in an interview before that, um, you know, sort of now your new album's about identity. And so it's... I would argue that all the music that I've been part of has, is in, True. in some ways about identity, but yes. Do you feel sort of like a relief now, or do you feel like you're in a new space where you're talking about different themes on your album now that, you know, you've been making music for years, and it may not have been particularly in all of your music before? Yeah, I mean, I, I think with this record, I think I'm able to say some things more directly and even with sort of like how I present this record to put this really colorful photograph with Persian calligraphy on it and no English text on the cover of the album I'm able to in that way kind of like create something that I feel like hopefully resonates with other people who grew up in America with immigrant parents or with you know roots in the Middle East when MIA came out in like 05, 06, mm-hmm. I remember just feeling like so connected to everything she was doing, like both aesthetically and musically. I felt like she was making music for us. This kind of like broad sort of like pan Middle Eastern identity of, in some ways, I guess like refugees, mm-hmm. you know, or like the children of refugees. Yeah, I guess I, I feel like with this album, I'm able to hopefully like connect to other people who've had these kind of like complex relationships with America, but still identify as American, you know, like. No, not as an immigrant myself, but yeah, you know, like a lo- some of those things did resonate with me, you know, just yeah, being, definitely. you know, like a black person in America. Um, yeah, America has, yeah. <laughs> has been <laughs> fucked up to Iranian people, fucked up to black people. Like there's a lot of, resonance is there mm-hmm. it continues to be fucked up to these groups this has been keep it with ira <laughs> uh, and we had a great conversation with ross in the day Thank go you. by the album we, we kept it real <laughs> <laughs> and that's our episode thank you for listening to keep it once again i am ira madison the third and we will be back next week don't forget to subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast whether that be apple music spotify catherine denise boudoir thank you to my lovely guests lewis vertel and kara brown for being here again and 
Rostam for coming in to have a great conversation with me. We'll see you next week. Lewis, what do white gay people think of Don Lemon? You know, um, actually, I do feel comfortable speaking on behalf of all of them. I think we think, for among liberal pundits, he's like kind of like a Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, like looks the part, like you're not terribly mad you're watching him, but you're not thrilled either. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started.